Good morning. My name is Jody Moore, and I'm originally from Minnesota. My husband is from Kansas. Uh, but you might be interested to know that one of my most favorite wedding photos is, was taken right about where the woods are sitting. Uh, we were married in this church uh, on December 29th, 2007. My husband and I met here in Lincoln. We're married. Um, we have two girls that are seven and four. And um, last November, we moved to Lincoln, and because my husband's job is here is the main reason we moved here, but I work very part-time um, with the denomination of the Evangelical Covenant Church in the department, our mission priority of start and strengthen churches, and if the next slide comes up, um, you can see... One of the pieces of Start and Strengthen is Congregational Vitality, which is my, one of my primary roles. It's a part-time role to support pastors and churches in the rural setting. And so I come alongside pastors in, when most of our rural churches have been around a pretty long time and help them with revitalization and vitality and leadership. And so that means that I'm on the phone with pastors, I'm emailing with pastors in the Covenant Pastors, and I teach uh, leadership workshops at various um, denominational events and meetings. So that's a little bit about me and why we're here in Lincoln now, um, but I'm going to spend the rest of the time on Luke chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, today's gospel presents us with Jesus' first act of public ministry. In Luke's gospel, uh, following his river baptism and his long wilderness fast and the temptations, Jesus returns to his home country, Galilee. Now in his baptism and the temptations, and then in Luke chapter 4, we know that Jesus is always under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Luke loves to note how Jesus is constantly responsive to God's leading and prompting. Reports about Jesus have been spreading throughout the population, probably the result of his healing miracles and his synagogue teachings. So when Jesus comes back home, it's quite a big day in the synagogue. Everybody's there, eager to hear the local boy who's making such a name for himself. Jesus enters the synagogue that Sabbath morning. It might seem a little bit smaller than it looked when he was a child, but otherwise... Everything looks familiar about the place, and not much has changed. We know that Joseph and Mary prepared him well for life. They raised him faithfully in their religion. He had regularly, regularly attended Sabbath school and youth group. They brought him to the synagogue every week as a baby, a child, and a teenager. We know it wasn't always easy, especially when he was a baby. We know that Joseph and Mary can be the patron saints for all the parents who now bring their babies to worship. The parents who make sure their children go to Sunday school. The parents who see their sons and daughters belong to youth group. It's not easy, am I right? But these parents know that the child who participates regularly in the community of God's people, not always, but is likely to have a strong faith into adulthood. And we give them the foundation they need to survive um, and make it through some of the crises in life. So here's Jesus. He's returned to Nazareth, his hometown synagogue. He's thankful for the upbringing he received there. And someone asks him to read the lesson from the prophets. 
And so this bulky scroll is brought to him and placed on the lectern, and Jesus is searching for a familiar text. He unrolls it to the place near the end of the scroll, and in a voice with strong anticipation, he reads aloud the words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Finished with this brief passage, Jesus rolls up the scroll, returns it to the attendant, and takes his seat. Now it was custom at that time for teachers to sit rather than to stand like I am. So when Jesus sits, everyone's looking at him, expecting some sort of explanation, some commentary of this reading and this passage that's so well known to all of them. There are no professional clergy in the room. The synagogue president can invite anyone, any appropriate person, to comment on this reading. Unfortunately, sometimes these remarks are less than inspiring. We know that the people of Jesus' time were biblically literate, but commentary by these such speakers is often no more than reciting from memory the lessons that they all learned at a much earlier age. So the congregation usually knows what's going to be said before it's said, and the only question is whether or not it will be correctly said or not. Not so today when Jesus sits down. Everyone's looking at him. And he looks around and he sees the familiar faces from his early years. They look a little bit older now than before. He, has his, he sees his childhood friends who are now bringing their own children into the synagogue. He sees the parents of his friends who now look a little bit more like senior citizens. Jesus begins with a zinger, more than a zinger. A sentence that remains fresh and provocative even in our time today. Jesus sets the scripture passage free that he has just read. He lets the lion out of its cage. He overthrows the ho-hum expectations of all the people around him. And you know what he says? Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus does the unexpected the unimaginable, on that memorable Sabbath morning in Nazareth. In today's language, we would claim that Jesus used those ancient words and claimed them as his own personal mission statement. The reason God's Spirit comes crashing down on him at his baptism is to empower Jesus to do precisely this, bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free, announce the sweet jubilee year when God's justice will finally reshape society. So Jesus takes all of this as his mission statement, and he's not content to leave it as only a, stra a string of fancy-sounding words. Everything that follows in his life as presented to us in scripture, amounts to the living out of this prophecy that he claims for himself on that Sabbath morning in Nazareth. Jesus keeps doing these things every chance he gets, every time he turns around until finally it kills him. Some people welcome what Jesus does. Others do not because it upsets their unfair advantage. It questions their complacency, 
and pushes them to recognize their habitual unfaithfulness to God. They find that their discomfort becomes increasingly intolerable and they think that Jesus' death will bring an end to this matter, but they're wrong, of course. Jesus rises from the dead, alive, and continues to do what what he talked about on that Sabbath morning so long ago. Now, the way that Jesus works is through his mystical body, the church. Through each of us, through all who are baptized into this body. Jesus strives to live out his mission statement, bringing good news to those who don't have any, setting free those who are chained in captivity, opening blind eyes, helping the oppressed and the exploited find the life, and unrolling the floor plan that sets our God's reign where justice and peace will prevail. Jesus still does those things because his church does them. The poor gain hope whether it's their souls or their bodies that are starved. The captives experience freedom, whether they're prisoners in a jail or prisoners in a mansion. The blind receive sight, whether it's cataract surgery at the hospital or scales of prejudice that are falling off of the racist person. The oppressed are set free, whether that oppression is a political regime or a chemical dependence. When Jesus reads this passage in the Nazareth synagogue, he announces a mission statement for himself and for his body, the church. So now today's reading from 1 Corinthians, if we jump to that, I also think that's an important message about how the body of Christ, the church, is to live out the mission statement of Jesus. So Paul begins, For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Then Paul, as we already read today, paints this very vivid picture as he talks about the human body as the body of Christ and compares each of the parts of the human body as we are part of the body of Christ. All of the roles are really important in the body of Christ. No, none can exist on their own. None is more important than the other. No one has the right to say to someone else, I have no need for you. Paul tells us that God so arranged the body that there would be no dissension within the body, but the members would have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. We are individual members of the one body of Christ. So when we consider what it means to fulfill Christ's mission, I think this 1 Corinthians 12 passage is something we need to hear and really consider that we are the body of Christ in the world, called to be the eyes of Jesus. Right in our gospel lesson, Jesus talks about recovery of sight to the blind. He certainly does this in literal ways through healing, but Jesus was also about opening the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. He talks about spiritual blindness as something that's actually a more troubling problem, frequently calling those Pharisees blind guides or blind fools or the blind leading the blind. Jesus always sees the situations of us and around us very clearly, even if we're trying to put a facade to cover it up. Jesus sees those that we don't see. In the gospel, he sees children. He sees women. He sees those in need of healing. 
He sees the faith of people who are on the fringes. He sees the ones that we would choose to walk right by. Jesus sees us as we truly are, as we hope to be, as we might be, as we are trying to be. So how do you see people? Who don't we see in this congregation? How can we be the eyes of Jesus? When I think about this congregation as the body of Christ, now remember, I haven't been attending here very long, so give me grace. But I can think of someone who truly acts as the eyes of Jesus, really seeing everyone. We have a couple of people who are most likely to see you if you're a visitor. They're almost always the first person to introduce themselves to someone new, which really meant a lot to our family when we first visited. The next Sunday, they remembered our names from the Sunday prior. And then they invited us. This is the first time this has ever happened, and I've been going to church my whole life. They invited us over to their home for lunch on our third visit. You are a blessed congregation to have people who are the eyes of Jesus in this body of Christ. We are called to be the ears of Jesus. Think about how you listen to someone who is talking. Do you listen while you're on your cell phone? Are you thinking about what you're going to say to them when they're finished sharing with you? Is your mind actually in another place of, besides how you'll respond? A million other things on what's your to-do list or what's happening next or even what you're going to say to them to help them fix their problem when they're done talking? If there's something I've learned over the years, it's that most people aren't looking for you to fix their problem. They're just hoping that you care about them enough to listen to their experience. Jesus gives his full attention to people. And Jesus asks of our full attention to what he teaches. Do you need to listen to a coworker who's struggling with their rebellious child? Are you listening to the woman who's struggling in her marriage? Are you listening to your friend who just lost their job? Can you really listen for the core of what someone is saying and understand their, pers their perspective? Of course, we're called to be the mouth of Christ. And we know that words are extremely powerful and words can hurt and words can heal. Each one of us can think of a time in our life and remember exactly what was said, said in love or said in anger. And sometimes these words are so powerful to us that we can still remember word for word what was said to us, even though it was a long time ago. And obviously, because words are powerful, we have to be careful about what we say. Every time we speak, we have the opportunity to be the mouth of Christ. So what has come out of your mouth that you are proud of? What have you said that has caused harm to another person? Jesus was someone who always spoke out of love, but also someone who spoke the truth even when the truth was difficult to hear. So when have you spoken up when no one else would? When have you raised your voice to call for justice, and when have you been quiet, letting the injustice go without giving voice to the harm that you saw done? We know that Jesus used his voice to share the good news of God's unconditional love to share the good news that we don't have to wait for God's kingdom, that God's kingdom is here and near and now. 
How are you the mouth of Christ to fulfill God's mission to restore the world? I urge you to carefully consider the power of your words and how we speak to one another. Some of you really work hard on inviting people to worship. And again, in my short time here, I've heard not once, not twice, not even three times, multiple times, a compliment has been given to Larry and Susie Carlson and their family for how they and their girls consistently invite people to come to church or Sunday school or youth group. They are acting as the mouth of Christ. We are blessed to have them in this congregation. We are called to be the hands of Christ. So let's think about what you use your hands for. In the Gospels, Jesus always used his hands primarily for healing and blessing other people. And again, he focuses his healing and his blessing on the people who are on the fringes of society and at the margins. Jesus also uses his hands to feed people and to serve and to wash the feet of his disciples. Physical touch is a powerful way that we communicate the love of Christ. How do we use our hands as Jesus did? I know there's some people here who use their hands to carry food, to get it to the right spot from the hallway to the food pantry. There's hands that have baked bread or made a meal for someone in need. We are blessed with the hands of Jesus in this congregation. And of course, let's not forget our feet. When I think about Jesus' feet and all the places he had to go, Jesus' feet took him places where no one else wanted to go. His feet took him to the home of a tax collector, the home of a Pharisee. His feet took him to a leper colony and to the mountains to pray. His feet took him across the top of the water. And eventually his feet led him to his own crucifixion where he gave his life freely. Jesus wants us to think about where our feet take us too. Jesus said, if someone requires you to go one mile with them, go a second mile. And this, he, what he was talking about when you read that verse is about a law that required the Jews to carry the pack of a Roman soldier for one mile if requested on the road. It was a law that you had to travel one mile. So what Jesus is saying is go further than required. Go the extra mile. Where do your feet take you, both literally and figuratively? When do your feet take you out of your comfort zone? I've seen the feet of the people in this congregation. Some feet have traveled on mission trips to serve those in need. Many feet have traveled to camp to learn about God. Some feet have traveled to serve meals to hungry people. Where do your feet take you? Sometimes we need reminding of how blessed we are to have such a full congregation of different and unique people. There was, is no one here who can bring to this congregation what you bring. There is no one here who can bring to this congregation what the person who sometimes frustrates you or challenges you brings as well. We are bound together. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the body of Christ. The tie that binds us is always going to be stronger than the differences that stretch us. 
And so we celebrate that. We nurture those bonds. We're meant to care for people who are already in the body of Christ. And this congregation does a good job at that. We are the body of Christ in the world, the eyes and the feet and the ears and the mouth and the hands that carry God's love made possible by the Holy Spirit that's at work in us. So how do these two passages tie together with our evangelism series and our blessed series? Have you ever wondered how to help a non-Christian friend grow? There are people all around living life in situations far less than what God ever dreamed. Some because of choices they've made, and some because of unjust people who should have loved them. It might be the person you pass who's living on the street. It might be the person who's struggling with an addiction and is yet to hit bottom. Some of these people are marginalized or forgotten, like the single mom trying to raise kids on a poverty-level income, or the refugee who's all alone and trying to make a home. Maybe it's the child who doesn't have access to a good education simply because of the neighborhood that he lives in. Anytime you see someone who's living in a condition or a circumstance that is less than what God dreamed, know this. Jesus wants to restore God's dream in their life. And our mission is to participate in that restoration. So if we are being the body of Christ in the world, and if we're working to restore God's dream of bringing good news to those who don't have any and setting free those chained in captivity and opening the eyes, the blind eyes, and helping those that are expressed and exploited find life, you don't have to go and answer every theological question your non-Christian friend might ask you. When you care, when we care about our friends who don't yet believe in Jesus, and we care about them the same way we care about those inside the church, we're helping our friends become curious about who Jesus is. If you make a meal for people inside the church, why not make a meal for someone that doesn't yet know Jesus and allow them to be curious about who this Jesus is? If you help fix a faucet for someone inside the church, why not help fix the faucet of your non-Christian coworker so that they would be curious about who this Jesus is. We want to provoke some interest in this Jesus guy. We want our friends and our family to become bothered and fascinated by Jesus himself. So instead of pontificating on a detailed version of systematic theology and explaining clearly what it would mean for a person to become a Christian and then asking them to pray the prayer, why don't you just tell your non-Christian friend your favorite Jesus story from the week? You can serve those who are less for fortunate than you. You can tell your favorite Jesus story of the week. Those are always, almost always, great things to do because people are captivated by how countercultural Jesus was. They're captivated by how Jesus embraced the poor and the marginalized. They're captivated by how he gutted the religious hypocrites and how natural and how open Jesus was to the people who didn't fit in, whether it's the homeless or the ostracized or the prostitute. People are intrigued by how little Jesus beat around the bush and how he often got straight to the heart of a person. 
As Doug Shop says, Jesus is very intriguing. There's no need to try to spice him up. He's as spicy as they come. Jesus read the old words from Isaiah. He claimed them from, for his own, and we can do the same. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and be ready to lead us in our final song. I'm going to invite the congregation to stand. And I want you to repeat after me these words of Jesus, sentence by sentence. I'll say the first sentence and you repeat after me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed us to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord has sent us to proclaim release to the captives. The Spirit of the Lord has sent us to help the blind recover their sight. The Spirit of the Lord has sent us to free the oppressed. The Spirit of the Lord has sent us to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Spirit of the Lord has sent us to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.